Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Hi there. We're going to talk to David Pepper here in just one second. But I have to tell you, summer is all about grilling and no one understands grilling better than Omaha Steaks. Their grand summer grill out package lets you stay at home, lets you social distance and eat like you're at the best steakhouse in town, all for much less. They've got bacon wrapped filet mignon, pork chops, chicken kielbasa and more all delivered to your door with ease. And right now, Omaha Steaks is offering an exclusive deal on this amazing package. Go to omahasteaks.com, enter the code liberal in the search bar. And for this week only, Omaha Steaks will add four burgers and four gourmet jumbo franks free with your order. Omaha Steaks delivers guaranteed quality and safety with every order. Go to omahasteaks.com, type liberal in the search bar, and order the Grand Summer Grill-Out Package. For this week only, you'll also receive four Jumbo Franks and four burgers free to complete your steakhouse experience. omahasteaks.com, enter the code liberal in the search bar. And now, let the cartoons begin. Broadcasting from Resistance Headquarters, relentlessly fighting back against the clown dictator and his regime of deplorables. Never give up, never surrender. This is the Bob Seska Show, presented by BubbleGenius.com. From our nation's capital, it is Wednesday, July 29, 2020, and this is the interview edition of the Bob Seska Show on the Sexy Liberal Podcast Network. My guest today is the great David Pepper. David is the chairman of the Ohio Democratic Party, as well as the author of a brand new book out now titled The Voter File, a fiction novel about foreign interference in a Wisconsin special election and a reporter's journey to unravel the plot. His previous book, The People's House, accurately predicted the Russian attack against the 2016 election. Today, we're going to talk about what Putin might have up his sleeve for this election, as well as the status of the campaign in Ohio. Meanwhile, if you like what you hear today, please help support this show at patreon.com slash show. All right, let's talk Russia and Ohio with David Pepper. Before we dig into Ohio politics and your most recent book, The Voter File, I'd like to talk about 2016 and your previous book, The People's House. Ex- okay. Explain what happens in that particular novel. I think our listeners are going to find it eerily familiar. So it's it's an interesting history. I started yeah. writing that book in 2012. Mm-hmm. And I kind of came up with this plot about a, a um, you know I would worked in Russia years before, yeah. and so the heart of that book was about a Russian oligarch who rigged an American election. Wow! And I wrote it, yeah I wrote it in <laughs> t- 
from 12 to 15, edited it a bunch, and put it out there in the middle of 16. And you know, as I joke, it was supposed to be fiction, and then it came true. So that was that was my first book, and I've been wow. writing ever since. It was about this time, uh, four years ago, about late July, right. when we first really learned that it was Russia behind the DNC hack. I mean, was that utterly mind-blowing for you? I mean, you had to have known, obviously, that something like this might be in the works, but to actually see it happen in real life a few years after you started the book, it must have been mind-blowing. So, it, it, I honestly, the the heart of the plot I wrote, you know, two or three years before. I mean, yeah. that's what was so strange about it. Yeah. But, but I think part of what happens when you're writing a book is you're sort of imagining – well, if you wanted to do something, how would you realistically do it? So mm-hmm. I think the reason it came to sort of mirror what happened was I was thinking, like a bad guy, if I wanted to plot about rigging the American election, what would I actually do? Yeah. Uh, but I, I mainly chose a Russian because I worked in Russia years ago, and I knew a little bit about it, so I came up with this character. But yeah, what was so the heart of it came before I had any any inkling of what was happening. Mm-hmm. I put it out in the middle of 16 and people, you know, people liked the book said, wow, well, that's great. And they would write, boy, I hope that never happens. That sure is scary. And then after November, when it really became clear what had happened, mm-hmm. that's when people would say, what in the world? Because, you know, some of the, some of the aspects of the book that, that, um, you know, it's not just the overarching plot, but there's specifics in there about, you know, some, uh, a, a voting uh, uh, the Russian guy, and not to give it all away. I hope people read it. He buys he <laughs> right. buys a vo- he buys a voting um, company. Um, well, that actually happened in Maryland around sixteen. Yeah, um, it's a lot of it's driven by the Russian oligarchs' interest in in fracking and pipelines, gas pipelines in America. Well, who's buying up uh, that kind of stuff uh, in Kentucky? Uh, Russians. Wow. I mean, so there's a lot of weird things that were prescient and the other one is and I you know we have to still explore this but I also got very specifically in how you might hack a voting machine mm. and it all comes down to uh taking advantage of the fact that we never really know why people choose not to vote in certain elections the mm. undervote yeah and that was sort of the heart of the heart of of sort of the hack and that's something that if you look, talk to voter integrity people one of their great concerns is the way you could hack voting machines is to simply throw out votes occasionally that change an outcome, but no one would, would ever know why. Um, so yeah, it was, um, it certainly was interesting. Um, yeah. and, and I, I go, my, I did not set out to predict anything, but I think when you're trying to write a realistic, you know, worst case scenario of what might happen in this case, you know, uh, you're able to pinpoint pretty quickly what are the vulnerabilities of our country right now. And mm-hmm. it's all about politics. Yeah, and you worked for uh, CSIS, Center for Strategic and International Studies, and, and through that organization, you had the rare opportunity to actually interact with Putin. Tell us how that Correct. came about and, and what you observed while negotiating with this guy. So, so yeah, that's that's sort of my, my Forrest Gump uh, existence when I was in my 20s, and <laughs> I was sort of meeting these famous people, but they weren't famous yet. Mm-hmm. I was working, I was in my early 20s. My first job out of school was I sort of was an intern research assistant for Big Brzezinski wow. at CSIS, which is a think tank in Washington. Yep. But from there, I got a job as part of a, of a task force, basically, that was working. And this was back when we got along well with Russia, early 90s, Clinton and Yeltsin, you know, were always out laughing together and working together. Yeah. And my job was trying to help bring technical assistance to St. Petersburg, the most western city at the time, 
that would bring like the kind of market reforms that, that we thought Russia would take on somewhat naively mm-hmm. uh, as a country. We did. And, and so we were there doing all this work, but the point person to my project, which was chaired by the mayor of St. Petersburg, was the vice mayor, um, Vladimir Putin, <laughs> who was amazing. this very quiet seer- – well, the irony is at the time, he was so different from the other Russians, like the mayor at the time – was a guy who everyone thought would become president, very charismatic, very intellectual. Mm-hmm. He had been the dean of the law school. He had written the, uh, Russian Const- the new Russian constitution. Other figures around him were equally impressive. Putin was the one who I literally thought, who's this guy? Who's this guy? How's he, how did he get this job? <laughs> he was quiet and serious, not yeah. very different from the others, but he did make the trains run on time. And as I've written, um, and I always worry that the Russians are going to get onto me for this, uh, two years in, this is when I first started really getting an understanding of him. Two years into meetings with Vladimir Putin, um, he had never spoken a word of English. And in the middle of one conversation with an interpreter, she must have messed up a word that he had said in Russian. And it was not some simple word. I can't remember what it was. And he corrected her in English. Hmm. And, 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 I, and I knew enough Russian uh, to, to, to kind of get it. But I'm thinking this was not some, any any old word. If he knows that word, he knows a lot of English, and we n- never once knew it. Wow. So my interactions with him basically make me very worried whenever I hear about the president talking with Putin. This is a guy who would be running circles around Donald Trump. I mean, yeah. Every every call they have is taped. Uh, Putin understands what Trump is saying in English, and then the interpreter translates for Trump. I mean. That's a nightmare. And when, so whenever I hear that Trump is ripping up the interpreter's notes or doing one-on-ones, I mean, every one of those phone calls is, I'm sure, a national security disaster mm-hmm. because Putin is a very savvy and wily person. I saw it myself. And, and by the way, the thing we were working on was completely like in partnership with St. Petersburg. Yet still, for two years, he still didn't ever say anything in English until he corrected her. Yeah. So when he's out to get us in different ways with Trump, I mean, he's totally, clearly running circles around him. And yeah. it, it you know, gives it should scare the heck out of everybody that Trump's having all these calls with Putin. Was there any indication at the time that Putin may have aspirations for bigger things, and not just the presidency, uh, but also some sort of aspiration? to meddle in elections. Was there any intention along those lines? No. I mean, when he was named, so the way it went down, when Yeltsin was leaving, with about a month left, they named Putin prime minister, and it was obvious that that was to make him the successor. And Mm -hmm. I was, I couldn't believe it. I thought, wait, that's the guy, that's the vice mayor. Uh, How did that even happen? So I would never... There were a number – like I said, I would have expected the mayor to become the head of Russia. That was the talk. There were other vice mayors that were actually very impressive and – you know. but but here – but my problem in that assessment was I was not sizing up the way Russia really ended up working, which is that old KGB connection, the connection to oligarchs. That's what mattered more in Putin's rise than than the things I was looking at as a 22-year-old kid in the early 90s, thinking I was looking at it from a sort of what would an American politician look like. Yeah. And so the, the more westernized ones stuck out as the ones that I thought would go on. And so, no, I, I wouldn't have sensed that ambition. Um, Putin had a uh, – I, I just remember when I worked there, he had a, 
affinity for sort of the way the German economy works, which mm. is much more dominated by large banks. I mean, that was seemed to be something separate from the work I did with him, that he was often doing work. And he had done some of his KGB you know, work in, in eastern Germany. So, I, I mean, I, I would never have predicted that he would rise. I mean, he would yeah. – if you had had 10 of the Russians around me that I knew – and again, a lot of these were Western-minded. He would have been – you know, maybe not tenth, but but on the list, not the one I'd say that could that person could go on to this incredibly you know serious and now very troubling role. Um, mm. I would say though that that there was also kind of a sense that some of the people that were most admirable, like the the mayor of St. Petersburg, was truly into a small d democracy, and you felt it. Yeah. I mean, and and he had been a big player in the Russian Constitution. He stood up. Remember that was that there was an attempt. To roll back some of the reforms, this guy had stood on a tank in St. Petersburg to stop it. You never got that sense of a democratic instinct from Putin. He was mm-hmm. more like the the operations guy. He made the trains run on time. I, I wouldn't have predicted the negative we're seeing, but I also he didn't he didn't give off the vibe of I'm someone who believes in sort of democratizing a country either. It was like he was the practical guy who got stuff done basically. At what point, with Putin holding higher office, first prime minister, and then eventually. A- basically president for life. I mean, that's what we're looking at now with Putin. At what point in that progression through higher office in Russia did any red flags start to raise in your head? Like, okay, there's going to be some trouble down the road from this guy. Were you observing him that closely? Were you seeing the indications? I left. So I I stopped my work in Russia in 96 and came back. And Mm -hmm. so I was more watching from a distance. But I, I was surprised when he was picked. I wouldn't have predicted it would be as bad as it is. Mm. I did. I did think. I did conclude from my time there, this was a savvy character, very not at all similar to sort of your traditional Western style political figure, and he would be a practical like guy. He would get things done without as much of a concern about, um, you know, democratic niceties as we have. But no, I would not have thought. I mean, and I just think it's been a slow. You know, every year it's more and more clear how deeply problematic he is yeah. i w- i wouldn't have predicted he'd rise but i i wouldn't i didn't know enough about you know i knew he was a, K- a former kgb spy but i think what might have been the most the most sort of the biggest red flag at the time would have been that he was selected at all yeah right. because this was some other group saying this is the guy and he wasn't rising in a way that you'd expect in a sort of a you know a, a more modernizing democracy. This was a selection by people. This is going to be the guy we put there, and that's what happened. And so the and and, and he was coming out of leading essentially the Russian you know version of the CIA or the mm-hmm. Homeland Security. The fact that he was picked with a month ago should have been a red flag to everybody that that the, our notions that that you know we were going to have this democratic Russia that. We sort of naively thought we'd get when Yeltsin was president. <laughs> right. That was all out the window the minute you had this very sort of closed-door selection of his successor of someone who had no history of any sort in actually these types of positions. He was more of a backroom guy. Like he was the guy who made stuff happen. He was not the he was not the the, the out front political figure until he was literally named prime minister. And that's when I was. It just to me the shock of it was wait. Putin, that's not who was even seen in St. Petersburg, <laughs> is the public face of the city. Right. And now, next thing we know, he's prime minister. 
Was it a failure of American intelligence? Was it a failure of Western intelligence in total? Uh, or was it Putin's savvy, as, a, as you said, as a backroom guy, that kind of blindsided us come, you know, 2014 when you have the Sochi Olympics and then right after that you have Crimea right. and Ukraine and, all, and then, of, of course, the attack on the American election uh, a couple of years after that. How did that come as a, such a surprise to Americans I, when that all went I, down? I think, you know, and I look back at my own time in Russia, I think we were really naive about how hard it would be to take Russia from the old Soviet style mm -hmm. and, and, and do a transition that would truly be a democracy in a, in a market economy system. And I think it go and then and then underestimating how much they could move back to nationalism. And by the way, I I think it, the whole thing makes me sad. I actually really enjoyed my time in Russia. Yeah. There were some wonderful human beings I met. Um, the next generation, and when I was there, was eager for something new. And I just think that we made mistakes. Uh, that we were naive. Our intelligence wasn't great. And then once Putin was there, I also think we didn't adjust enough to realize. Listen, uh, this guy, you know, in, in a weird way, like the tougher we are, the more I think we'll get somewhere with a country like Russia. I right. think what Russia, uh, what a guy like Putin, and I, and I can say this somewhat from my interaction with him, I don't want to overstate it, mm -hmm. but I think a guy like Putin respects when his adversary is strong. Huh. And that's what they're used to. And they're, they're, a guy like Putin is sizing up his adversary, strong or weak. If they're yeah. weak, Trump is incredibly weak. Yeah. If they're weak, I take advantage of them. Mm -hmm. If they're strong, I've got a deal. Hillary Clinton, they viewed clearly as a, as a strong adversary. Yeah. They didn't want her there, but if she were there sort of going toe-to-toe, -to -toe, like an Angela Merkel would or someone else, I actually think there's more respect than if it's someone like Putin, like Trump, who's doesn't say a word about anything and gets run over. Mm -hmm. uh, and so I, I do think that... Um, that we did not size that up. I mean, I would even I would even criticize the late in the in the Obama administration. I don't think they were tough enough. I think yeah. Putin is sense he's looking for weakness. He's looking for people who won't stand up to him. And if he if he senses that, he'll move in. And if he senses no no no, this other country, this other adversary is tough. There's almost a respect level. This is kind of a small item, but but the the American co-chair. And some of your listeners will like this or not like this. The American co-chair of my project, the Russian co-chair was the mayor. Mm -hmm. The American co-chair was Henry Kissinger. Wow. So, again, this is my Forrest Gump life back then. <laughs> yeah, it's You amazing. know what? Henry Kissinger was a tough American, right? Mm -hmm. Yep. They loved that Kissinger was the co-chair because he was he, – they respected that he was this large, tough guy, this large, tough figure. And so that was one of the reasons they valued this huh. work I was doing. Wow. So I think if when it comes to to you know dealing with Russia, I think the mistake you make is to actually show weakness, and then they take advantage of it. And and, and Trump, he talks. He obviously is a blustery guy, but they know how pathetic he is. They know yeah. how weak he is, and they take advantage of it every single day. They knew that Hillary Clinton is not that. Yeah. And I think that would have made for a, a tougher role for them. But I actually think. If you're trying to long-term – I mean I think our goal should be to try and find a better world than we're in right now where we're literally like getting closer and closer to real you know, acrimony with all these other powers. Yep. I think being a tougher country 
will lead to a more stable situation than being a weak country they take advantage of. And I, I do think for 15 years we have not gotten that right. Yeah, yeah. And you know, I think of 2014 as being the turning point with Putin where Americans finally went, oh, God, okay, now we see what he's up to. But actually, I go back to even 2013 and what happened with Edward Snowden, where Edward Snowden is escorted from Hong Kong to Moscow by um, uh, WikiLeaks attorneys and then arrives in Moscow and, and is basically given a free pass. Here, come stay, enjoy, <laughs> you know. Right. And, he's, and he's he's hooked up with Anatoly Kucherina as an attorney in Moscow. Where do you peg all of that as part? Was that sort of just something that landed in Putin's lap or was that something that he maybe had been cultivating uh, leading yeah, up to I, it? I honestly, I, I don't know enough to say there, but I do yeah. think that, that I do think, you know, they're, there is a sense from Russia mm-hmm. that we were celebrating so much their decline. Yeah. And it, it was insulting every year that it happened. This is one reason Putin came to power. Yeltsin, in the end, they thought was an embarrassment. Hmm. And, and that, that, you know, that, that America was celebrating their decline and their pride was, you know, injured to say the least through the 90s. And so, yeah, any way they could stick it to the, to the country that had, that had kind of, you know, rubbed it in their face that they collapsed, like the Snowden thing. Um, grabbing the Olympics was a big win. Yeah. You know, all that. I mean, th- that's why you see these Russian, they can't help themselves. The Russian TV, they they laugh at the fact that that Trump is seen as Putin's person. That's, this is like the turnaround from the mid-90s where they thought we were sort of humiliating them. Now they're watching saying, look, at, so I do think a lot of that stuff is all sort of a reaction to uh, the mid nineties. And I, I do, I, you know, it's easy to say all this and go going back in time. I, I don't know what the perfect answer would have been, but I do think in the mid nineties, it, it was a little bit, we were too naive to think, Hey, the wall came down. These countries are just going to embrace all this. And, and, you know, and, and here we go. And mm-hmm. I just think that we weren't as sophisticated about it. Now in Eastern Europe, it, it did happen. And, and yeah. the, the, the story that isn't told enough is how much, you know the Czech Republic and Poland and there's other well they're they're having issues now too but overall the transition there was much smoother. Um, now the democratic systems are you know, voting depending on the country for people who aren't so good. Yeah, yeah. But it was the the deeper lift that was needed in Russia and in Ukraine and the and the so, former Soviet caucuses um, was just um, I don't think we really thought about it as deeply and we we thought you know a few friendly meetings and friendly relations would get it done clearly was a lot more that we need to do yeah speaking and and do it without and and do it without humiliating people so they built up this resentment that that you know putin won in the same reason that trump won with make america great again it was yeah we make america make russia great again get our pride back uh, that that was a, a lot of what brought him in and why he was so popular for a long time. And in fact, isn't part of that expansionism? I mean, that would explain Crimea. That would explain uh, Ukraine overall. Yes. Is there any uh, ambition along those lines to expand into Eastern Europe again? Is that kind of on the table for Putin? Is that a long term I mean, goal? I, I don't. I mean, I think wherever you see Russian population, you know, Russian ethnic population, and that's how they think about it. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah, I, I would think that there's you know, that's somewhere there. I mean, obviously, mm. Ukraine, Eastern Ukraine is the most obvious example. Yeah. Um, but no, if I, you know, I think the 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 um, you know, the Baltics and and other places, there's probably always a, a concern about it. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And again, I, I worry. I really, I, I worry so much. Not to sound paranoid, but when they see Trump as weak as he is, and you know, just today, you know, more troops coming out of Germany. I mean, Trump is doing everything that Russian foreign policy yep. wants us to do. Yep. And I do worry if you know if Trump, you know, when, let's let me say when Trump loses, who knows what Russia might try mm-hmm. if they think that that they only have a few months left with a with an American president who will do nothing about it. Wow. I mean, if if he's not willing to bring up the fact that they either stole an election or are putting bounties on American troops, they're thinking, what else could we do that he won't do anything about? That's a really if we think about it from a national security perspective. That's a really scary moment for our country. Oh yeah. That that you you know one of the keys you know is you know I don't know your age. I'm 49. Like in fact, my birthday. I was born um, less than a month after you were. So oh, we're really? the okay, same so, age. Yeah. yeah. So we grew up when when like we had this crazy deterrent theory and nuclear weapons and all mm-hmm. that, and that was all kind of scary when you look back at it. But there was some security that came out of you kind of knew what each side would do. Yeah. And right now, I am worried that Russia may think, and they may be right, they that we won't do something because of Trump if they take a very hostile act. Yeah. And that kind of that in the past, no one would ever dream of that. And and that's the kind of sort of unequal understanding or misunderstanding that can lead to major problems. Mm-hmm. And, and so, you know, if if they roll troops into into the breast of Ukraine, if they did something somewhere else, you know, would Trump get on the line with Putin and tell him he wouldn't do anything about it or beforehand? You know, it, that kind of uncertainty when they would have been certain before that we would actually do something, yeah. that's a really risky moment in, frankly, our world. And and the other thing that scares me, again, not to only talk about things that are worrisome, but like <laughs> when you see that General Milley yeah. unwilling to say no to showing up in Lafayette Square, and then you see the Russians saying, man, that general, he did exactly what Trump told him to do. It was, what a crazy – well, all of a sudden, again, that leads to uh, the potential for to- misunderstanding or underestimation about what hostile acts might lead to. And mm-hmm. I, I mean I think between now and – the, the inauguration of President Joe Biden. I mean, there, there's there's a real risk about that, you know, of, about a moment where where Russians might think they can get away with something that they otherwise would never think they could get away with. Oh yeah, and Trump has handed Putin the keys to the kingdom, and that's for sure. But I mean, the question is, and the question I think everyone's asking is, what exactly is it that Putin has on Donald Trump? What is the manipulation here? What, is it Trump Tower Moscow? Is it compromat? Is it money laundering? I mean, what's your guess on that? I mean, what is so it? I, that, yeah, yeah. I, I don't want. So I wrote a whole second book about um, about politics beyond the, the first one, and it, right. it's all about compromat. Yeah. And so I don't want to act like I know anything in particular, but here's what I would have said about a, a businessman of of Trump's of Trump's you know size, which mm-hmm. in the in the grand scheme of the business is not that big. Yeah, you know he's not sort of a massive Fortune 500 company setting up shop in Russia. He's a mid-level at best real estate guy. To do that, the time he was doing it, you had to do all sorts of cutting of corners. Mm-hmm. Unless you were as ethical as can be, if, and Trump obviously is the opposite, to get to get a business up and running, to do the Trump Tower, you're doing all sorts of things that aren't appropriate. Yeah. And if you're doing that in Russia, everyone knows that everyone has receipts. That alone is is material that could be that that's clearly there. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't be. It'd be shocking if they didn't have it. 
uh, let alone other things that might be there. But here's the here's the compromise that is is to me more even relevant than the than what originally might have gotten Trump feeling like he couldn't say too much about Russia. It's every single time they have a conversation. It's yeah. it's every conversation about the election in sixteen, and we know things happened. And then it's everything after. It's every phone call. You know, it's every time Trump has said anything for three years to Putin that's been recorded, and America never knows what was said. That is one other item that could be used against Trump publicly by Russia, and everyone knows it. You know, yeah. whatever he said at Helsinki when they tore up the interpreter's notes. There's compromise right there. Mm-hmm. Whatever you know, whatever was said to Trump Jr. You know, back in the election, you name it all. So that's why when I go back to my initial meeting with Putin, I believe that every single time they interact, they are developing things that tr- that would hurt Trump if it came out, and mm-hmm. that's all against him. Let alone whatever transactions or interactions took place uh, back when he was there. You know, you you probably heard the same things. I, I never was in Russia before it was Russia. But you didn't go to the Soviet Union back in the 80s and without being followed. Oh yeah. Um, and and I think when I was there, it was a little. It wasn't quite so bad. But the, then then you know, in the late 90s and 2000, after the whole sort of mobbing up of the place got worse. And, and so Donald Trump would have been walking through a world in Russia when he was trying to do deals, the beauty pageant, when everything he done would have been sort of watched and be receipts. But I, I think he's developed more of the problem. Since he's been president, probably yeah. at, at any moment they could say, you know, hey, that phone call we had a year ago, that could be trouble. I mean, so they've got it all right now, and uh, it, it's it. You know, it's bad when Donald Trump will turn on anybody, he'll criticize anybody, except for one person, yeah, Vladimir Putin, yeah. and, and somehow he has no discipline in his life whatsoever, except for one thing, and it's that he will never ever criticize one man. And that tells you something's going on yeah. besides that he has some inclination that he likes the country of Russia. Well, that's, it's too much. Ultimately, that's the main thing about this. I mean, other than the international intrigue of it, the attack and so on, the, the consequences of it, is that it's so obvious. We all see it. it. It's so clear and unequivocal. And yet yeah. we're, we're being gaslit on all of those things. I, well, I mean, what, what was your reaction to Trump's interview with Axios? There was a clip that came out today in which he said the uh, Putin bounty story is fake news while also saying that the intelligence never made it to his death. It's one of those things yeah. where the news is fake, but the leak is real. <laughs> it's, it's so well, and the worst, yeah, and the worst part is he also gave the Russian answer on, well, yeah, we did that to their troops too. I mean, that's what Putin would say. That's what a, that's what Putin would say. Yep. So I agree with you. I actually think that we have sort of been gaslighting ourselves for four years mm-hmm. because we continue to be shocked by it. Yeah. It's like. Wait, that's what you would if you if if you are basically you know somehow in trouble with Putin and can't ever say no to him. Everything he's doing is exactly how you would behave. Mm-hmm. And so our media, I mean, people, it I guess people don't like to talk about it. It feels a little conspiratorial, blah blah blah. But I actually think that the continued shock of it is almost us fooling, us almost pretending that it's not as bad as it is. And the, the thing, I, the thing I keep saying is, and again, this is. This is sort of the, the, the writer in me talking because, the, you know, when you're writing books, you're thinking about worst-case scenarios. Yeah. But all of a sudden, they make more sense than, than the denial of what, what actually is happening. Oh, yeah. I think in a year or two, let's, say, let's assume Trump loses, I think it's going to be 
a lot worse than anything we're thinking about right now. Oh, I think God. that the that the that the the depth of it, these phone calls, what they're talking about, the connections, they they I mean just as an example, they were working so hard to create a back channel a couple years ago. Yeah. Do we think they just stopped trying to create one? No, I <laughs> no. think there is one. Yeah, there, it's exist. There's there's one that right. exists. There's no there's no doubt to me that it they didn't you know Jared dumbly goes over to try and do it at the at the embassy, um, you know somewhere they created it and it exists. I, I I don't think they just stopped trying to have those back channel communications. Yeah. I think they actually succeeded in figuring out a way to do it. <laughs> Um, where, where Trump, separate from his chief of staff and separate from others, could actually have. So I just think we're going to find that, and this is true with just the corruption generally. I think w- when this is over, and this is why they're going to fight so hard to not lose. I think we are going to find that the the level of corruption, the level of tentacles back into whatever the Russia interaction is, is going to be uh, more shocking than we even think now. And and oh, and and the behavior of Donald Trump is why I think that he he just won't. Go with, even the interview you mentioned today. Yeah, I mean, it just he can't do it. He won't go there, and it just tells you everything you need to know. Unfortunately, COVID nineteen infection rates are exploding across the nation. We know it's common sense that everyone wears a face mask, and finally, most states have put mask mandates in place. Despite what Louis Gomert says, face masks are still our best way to protect ourselves, our family, and our community. But what happens when the mask you thought you were buying is fraudulent or worthless? The FDA has provided a list of authorized respirator mask manufacturers. Finding those masks has been a challenge, and verifying their authenticity is even harder. Right now, thenewdealshop.com has FDA-authorized respirator masks with anti-fake authentication on every package to ensure you're getting exactly what you need. These masks are tested by the NPPTL in the United States and provide greater than 95% filtration. They've even been used in the medical community, too. Right now, these masks are in stock and ship for free for my listeners. When you add the code SEXYLIBERAL, two words, go to thenewdealshop.com and order your supply today. That's thenewdealshop.com. Get them and keep yourself, your family, and your community safe. You know what everyone hates in this time of pandemics and social media and Zoom meetings and all that crap? You know what we hate? We hate when people put unauthorized screen grabs and photos of us up on their social media pages. It's always when we're looking the weirdest, too. We're not at our best sometimes, and somehow all of our friends and family find those photos and they stick them up there without asking our permission. Two solutions for you. A no unauthorized photos policy with your friends. And of course, I'm talking about Plexiderm. Plexiderm is a clinically studied serum that visibly eliminates your wrinkles, crow's feet, and under eye bags, all in the comfort of your own home. Plexiderm goes on clear and lasts for hours, so nobody's going to know that you're using it. Go to triplexiderm.com, use my code VOICES for half off a full-size bottle of Plexiderm, plus an additional $10 off. Or try a $14.95 trial pack today by calling 1-800-685-1292 and mentioning the code VOICES. Again, visit triplexiderm.com, use the code VOICES for half off a full-size bottle plus an additional $10 off, or try a $14.95 trial pack when you use the code VOICES at triplexiderm.com. Thank you. The Bob Seska Show. Tell me, uh, David, about the new book, The Voter File. You mentioned that it is uh, sort of pegged off of Compromat. It has more to do with the, the uh, a plot to undermine a special election, yeah? Right. Yeah. Well, so, so the, the, the second book with the wingman is more on Compromat. It's the third oh, okay. 
It's the thir- the new book is called the Voter File, the voter and, file. and yeah. basically what it does is it takes a um, it takes sort of the first two into a sort of deeper direction. It almost is assuming that we've solved the problem that our election systems themselves aren't able to be rigged, which is not the current state of things. <laughs> no, and it 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 basically takes. Um, you know, there, there was a, obviously hacking of the DNC in, in 2016. That mm-hmm. was part of the overall plot. Right. And they hacked emails. We know that. You know, poor John Podesta got his emails hacked. That was terrible. We know they were looking at polling. But every once in a while, if you see the articles about 2016, they'll say, oh, they also were trying to get voter data. Yeah. And the book, The Voter File, is essentially what would happen if – a hostile force, be it a country or anyone, managed to hack into the voter file or voter data of campaigns or parties. And and the point of the book is that is actually the far bigger risk. Emails and polls are one thing. You can get embarrassing details. You can use in different ways. But if you got into the voter file of, of, of a major campaign or a party, you're essentially got your arms around their playbook. It'd be like stealing the playbook of an NFL team before right. the game. Yeah. And so this book is sort of the the you know the, it's fiction, uh, but it's also it, but but again so was my first book. Um, this is this is what would happen, what damage you could do in a fictionalized way, mm-hmm. if a hostile entity were able to get their hands around in this case the voter files of both parties and how that would allow them to to really do major damage to elections up and down the ballot without ever touching a voter machine, yeah. without ever touching a sector of state's you know, voter database. And so you know, as, as I've gotten with other books I've written, um, you know, people read it and say, man, that is a really scary <laughs> prospect. Yeah. And obviously you know, the number one the lesson is everyone who's involved in campaigns and parties needs, needs to protect this stuff very, very um, you know, as hard as they can, and, and mm-hmm. they do. But it's sort of walking through. And the, the other thing that's been interesting is a lot of vo- voters have no idea that these voter files even exist, where there's all sorts of information about them and details and all that. And I think it's also incumbent, you know, today we have a hearing with Facebook at Congress, and we're always concerned about what does Facebook do with data? Well, I think parties and campaigns need to be equally protective of the private data that they accumulate as oh, yeah. they build towards campaigns. So th- there's also a lot in it about uh, monopolies and and how much they're sort of dominating politics. But but, but so all my books are basically a there's a there's a reporter, sort of a down and out Youngstown vindicator, mid-sized reporter who kind of f- falls into a and this happened in the first and third book. There's sort of an odd election result. He doesn't quite it's not it doesn't seem big. Yeah. But all of a sudden he starts digging and it's this big much bigger deal. And and so as you mentioned, the special election was a Supreme Court race in Wisconsin and ironically there just was a big one two months ago. <laughs> yeah, that's what I was yeah. thinking. Yeah, oh my I, god. Again, I wrote it a couple of years. I wrote the heart of it a couple of years ago, but I picked Wisconsin because they actually do have special elections for Supreme Court. Most states don't. Yeah. But but the data the data manager of the winning candidate calls up uh, calls up everybody and says, "I don't think we won this campaign. I'm I'm the data person. It doesn't make sense that we won." Mm-hmm. And everyone's looking at her like, that's, come on, that doesn't make any sense. But but my reporter, who's kind of down and out, is like, I need to find a story. And she says that he doesn't really believe it, but then we see, she starts showing him how the voter file works, what the data looked like going in the election, and says, there's no way we won that election. And when he starts digging, he figures out that that special election wasn't hacked for its own right. 
it was sort of someone perfecting in in preparation for a much bigger election coming in November. So that's sort of the heart of the book. Is it difficult now to write political fiction? I mean, given how factual reality is growing increasingly weird on a daily basis? You know, it, it, it honestly is, because yeah. I write these things thinking, man, this is one crazy plot. Yeah. And then, and then uh, you know, a month later, like Trump's doing something crazier. I don't know if you saw today, but... Um, um, I almost tweeted this out. Um, you know, my second book also is all about a a sort of a conspiracy to add candidates into a primary in order for one candidate to benefit by other candidates taking away votes from the favorite. Oh, that uh, sounds or familiar. You might call it the Kanye West uh, conspiracy <laughs> yeah, theory. Yeah, exactly. So, so, I, so it's all about like that's literally the plot is you've got you add someone to God. the primary to really tar- tank another. Candidate, mm. and so I'm. That's the. It's, and so I'm watching this Kanye West, thinking, well, that's my. There's the wingman. That's my plot. Yeah. Uh, but today they had a. Um, the one thing I'd say about Trump versus my plots, is my people are much more effective and smart. Yeah. Um, they had a thing today with Kanye West where like a bunch of the signatures where he's trying to get on the ballot in one state were clearly all forged by one person. And you you look at them and it's so obvious. I almost tweeted, you know, in my plot, my my bad guys were actually a lot smarter than this, and yeah. they wouldn't have been so sloppy. But but so no, it is funny um, how. And, and so one of the things I try and do is so it doesn't seem like I'm just writing about things that are happening. I I do try now that I after the first one happened and I happened to I was ahead of the curve. Mm-hmm. Thank God I put it out in early in middle of sixteen before people would have assumed I was just writing about current events. <laughs> you know I I do have to challenge myself to think ahead. Yeah. And get a get in front of the curve and so with the voter file I did that I I've actually just finished a few months ago the draft of my next book. I try and get ahead of it and hope that real life doesn't catch up. Yeah. Um, because because then all of a sudden you have a plot and people. You know, so if you ever go to my Amazon reviews, I, one not too long ago was well, way to go, genius! You just wrote about what happened. I'm like, no, my book came out in 16. I none of this had happened yet. <laughs> so amazing. so you do. Ha- it is sort of a risk. Yeah. And uh, it, it's a challenge. Mm-hmm. And the other thing about about writing. And so one of the the, the truth is. I started writing fiction with two purposes. One was to tell good stories, and if you don't do that in fiction, you won't succeed. But the other was actually to give a view to readers what real politics looks like and to hopefully inform them Mm -hmm. about what's really going on. So the first book, the reason I came up with that plot was actually it's sort of a a, – not a lecture, but – really try to explain how bad gerrymandering is. Mm-hmm. Right. My second book is all about dark money. My third book is all about the monopolies and how they dominate. So there's actually a deeper point to these books, which is beyond party to, to get people thinking about issues about real politics. And I think that's been an important part of my book succeeding because people right now are so concerned about what's going on in the world that a lot of fiction is just not being read. They're reading Mary Trump's book. They're yeah. reading, you know, nonfiction just to keep up with how crazy our world has become. And so my books sort of they're fiction, but I try. It, but I'm I don't want to feel like you know um, what's the book? Uh, what's the what's the TV like Scandal or what was the oh, yeah, Kevin yeah. Spacey series? Mm. I don't want to feel unrealistic, so people are just you know 
dismissing it. I actually want people leaving my books thinking, boy, I hadn't thought about gerrymandering that way. It really yeah. is a problem. Or dark money. You know, People will say to me, is that how it works? I'm like, yes. I've captured the way dark money kills our system. Mm-hmm. And so I try – in one way, I think it, it, it's not just competing with the real world. I try and I try and have it be something that that and people who've read my books repeatedly say to me, "Hey, your books always inform me about how politics really works." I have a letter that just sitting at my desk here from a like an 85-year-old woman who wrote who wrote me out of the blue. I don't even know how she found she found me. Um it, the heart of her letter was, "I learned so much from your books about about the war about the world and the way mm-hmm. the politics works. And that's another way that in addition to trying to entertain, which does get hard against the Trump craziness, um, that hopefully people who follow my books, one reason they do is they're educational. Yeah. Um, and, I've, and I've heard that again and again. It's just incredible. I mean, every single one of those topics, whether it's gerrymandering, dark money, uh, attacks on our elections from hostile foreign governments. I mean, these are all the top shelf things that we're facing as Americans. I mean, these are the top uh, potential disasters and disasters that have already occurred that we have to confront. And it seems like you're right on the vanguard of that. I mean, even in advance of the vanguard, it's extremely impressive to see how ahead of the curve you are, but it doesn't take much to notice that these are all things that are starting to stack up and starting to strip away the integrity of our elections and and have been for some time now. Yeah. Uh, And that, uh, I guess, turns us to Ohio politics. I want to ask you a few things about that before we wrap up, uh, David. I mean, one of the minor controversies that arose about a week ago or so was news that John Kasich was invited to speak at the Democratic convention. I mean, I'm not sure how that all sussed out after the fact, but... What's your take on the politics of that invitation? So I don't. I think that was floated. I don't know if that's confirmed or not. No. Um, and and you know, the politics of it are interesting. So there's obviously. I, mean, I have been very critical of Kasich as governor. Yeah. He really, he did a lot of things here, especially in his early years. You know, attacking unions, uh, undermining schools. Uh, uh, you know, a lot of stuff. He gerrymandered the state. He was one of the people. So I, I mean. The state is is you know struggling because we've had ten years of, of really bad policies, and Kasich was a big part of that. Yeah. At the same time, I'm, I respect that he is one of the few Republicans in recent years who will publicly stand up against Donald Trump, and and good for him. You know, we, we should you know we ask people to stay say what they believe to be true and put put country over party, and so when they do, be it Mitt Romney or John Kasich. If we don't say good for them, no one else is ever going to do it. Yeah. And I do respect, and I think it's very sincere that he is offended by Trump in every way possible. Mm-hmm. Now, and despite the fact that I couldn't disagree with him more on a lot of his policies as oh, governor. Sure. Yeah. So when that was announced, a lot of people who are remembering the governor's side are really upset, and I, get, I actually understand that. I don't think this is some – this is not some obvious decision one way or another. But on the politics of it, what I would say is – for you know we are we are now a toss up state we have a we and we are a toss up state in Ohio every poll shows that we're basically even yep we are mainly a toss up state because a whole lot of republicans just like john kasich moderates from suburbs more moderate than kasich do not feel any allegiance left in with the republican party mm-hmm. and this is largely women and these are suburbs of ohio that aren't some small part of the state Collectively, these suburbs are the largest voting bloc in Ohio. 
Right. And these are the places that only a few years ago Republicans would run up huge numbers and win. I mean, the reason a George Voinovich or a Bob Taft or a Kasich would win would be because they'd run up massive numbers in the suburbs I'm not talking about. They lose the cities, but the suburbs were the key to their victory. Those suburbs are turning blue very quickly. It changes dramatically the mathematics of winning Ohio. If their old base is now essentially toss up or blue, you know, a good campaign can win Ohio that a few years ago wouldn't have won Ohio. Yep. And here's the, here's the reason I think that that whoever's doing this, and again, I have not had direct conversations. Those people are taking cues from people like John Kasich. Hmm. And so, you know, they, you know, John Kasich, one reason, you know, people, we didn't win the governor's race in 2018. Um, Mike DeWine won it against, in in a year that Sherrod won by seven. John Kasich endorsed Mike DeWine late. Mm -hmm. I think that moderate endorsement, giving a signal to these moderate Republicans, DeWine, although DeWine's very conservative on a lot of issues, we, we're, we're upset that he won. He's done a decent job on COVID for, for some of the time. And you, you, ran, you ran against DeWine in I ran 2014. Against him in, in 14, yeah. right. I ran yeah. against him in 14. Um, but I believe that that John Kasich signal mm-hmm. to these shifting voters that DeWine's more like me and less like, you know, Sherrod Brown's opponent, Jim Renacci, and less like Trump actually saved DeWine along yeah. with a few other things in a year that he might have otherwise. I mean, DeWine was losing all the way in the last couple of weeks. He was he was told by pollsters he was going to lose the election. He was told it was over. And I believe that one reason that he held on, and you can see it in the data, he did not lose in the suburbs by as badly as, badly as other Republicans. And I think the Kasich endorsement, and particularly women giving DeWine a shot, saved DeWine uh, from the fate of so many other Republicans in these suburbs, and that was a difference. So, you know, if if despite the fact that we disagree with many things he says, I actually think Kasich speaking out, whether whether it was the convention or on CNN or whatever, however he does it. Yeah. And I think there's a fair debate should it be at the convention. You know, I'll let the the, the party and the Biden campaign decide that. But but I think for those voters who who are some of them are still not Democrats yet. Mm-hmm. They're but they they can't stand Trump. You know, a guy like John Kasich saying, I'm, I'm good with Biden, that's a signal, just like it was in 18 for Mike DeWine, that actually might move the kind of a few percentage points voters that could take change the outcome. And I think that's why it's being looked – that's clearly why it's being looked at. And, and I, I think that people in Ohio will tell you that the, the case the, – the brand that DeWine was in the sort of the Kasich moderate wing the, versus the right wing – was a very important reason that DeWine did not suffer the same fate as uh, Republicans in other states who just are getting so crushed in the suburbs they can't win. Yeah, correct me if I'm wrong, David, because it seems like we're in the midst of a realignment here, and John Kasich seems to be at the head of that. I mean, he seems to be one of the leaders of that realignment of people who are, uh, you know, more or less lifetime Republicans who are starting to look at the Democratic Party as a possibility since the Republican Party has gone just full red hat, I mean, for the most part. And, and as you said, Ohio is right now, and according to the polling averages, a one-point race between right. Trump, Trump and Biden. So we're talking about... I mean, all Kasich needs to do is to bring another 5% of Republicans to the table, 3% of Republicans to the table, to shift that balance greatly in favor of Joe Biden. It seems nuts to turn that down, don't you think? Uh, I mean, I, I will say I get the – we fought him so hard 
on major issues that I, I don't want to dismiss people who are not happy about it as if I mean, it, we're talking about core issues of yeah. you know uh, yeah. labor and, and a woman's right to choose that he was terrible on. Mm-hmm. So I, I mean I get it, but I also think that I do think that that him standing there and here and here are the kind of voters we're talking about. They know they don't like Trump, but they're seeing ads right now that Joe Biden is going to unleash criminals all throughout the suburbs. I mean I saw one last night in in on my TV here. It's ridiculous. But those voters are literally by within nine. We got 97 days between now and the voting day. They are going to hear a million ridiculously misleading and horrible things about Joe Biden. Yeah. And at that point, they're not going to know which way is up. And that's where I think if Joe, if if a guy like Kasich is saying, "Hey guys, I'm seeing all this. Joe Biden is a good guy." I mean, I do think that could could sway the voters who are not for Trump, but are going to have heard so much B, you know, BS about Biden that they really aren't going to know what to do. I do think he – yes, I think he could move votes. Uh, he's moved votes. He moved votes in the governor's race. I believe that, and I do think he can move votes. So I don't think it's an easy call because I do think you – know, and I was one of them. Like We fought so hard on issues uh, that we disagree with him on. And so, But, but the, the way I, – if he is picked, the way I would frame it is – Listen, we're not endorsing his views. Yeah, exactly. He's endorsing our guy. Exactly it's not like right. I, yeah. it's not like I'm saying that I agree with. No, I I actually I'm proud to have fought and we stopped. We one reason John Kasich changed on some issues is cuz when he tried to destroy collective bargaining in Ohio, he was defeated just so badly. Mm-hmm. So, on some things he figured out I'm not I'm not in lockstep with Ohio at all on these things. Others he never stopped. I mean, Ohio's legislature has tried to ban abortion every since way, every every which way every year. He signed most of those. So so, but the point is, if it is if it is him, if he is picked, I mean, I do think it moves us. It, it could move points our way. But I also think we have to. I don't think groups that have a problem with him should feel like they all of a sudden have to act like those problems have disappeared. Again, he's endorsing, despite all of our disagreements. He's endorsing our person, not the other way around. But I think he is sort of symbolic of a lot of the movement we are seeing. Yeah, actually, I think he's actually more to the right of most of the voters I'm talking about Yeah, um, on a lot of issues. But I think that he kind of – he'll be speaking to a lot of voters who are moving away from the Republican Party and his signal that, listen, I'm kind of like you guys and I'm good with Biden. I do think that will – that certainly will move some voters. Mm-hmm. And if, if, it's, if Ohio is dead even – it, it will move voters potentially in a way that, that helps Biden win. Do you see, uh, as the uh, chair of the Ohio Democratic Party, do you see that one-point race, and also as the author of all of these books, do you see that one-point race as being like a giant red target for Vladimir Putin? The fact that, it's God, it's one point separates Trump and Biden. That's like fertile ground for an attack, yeah. don't you think? Well, what's funny you mentioned that, not to keep going back to my books, but the reason in the people's house, yeah. the reason that they were able to do what they did is because gerrymandering made it so clear what the 18 or 20 congressional targets would be. Mm-hmm. There are only a very few number of swings of swing congressional seats, and those were the ones they rigged when they wanted to seize control of the U.S. House of Representatives. So, yeah, in the same way, if you're trying to interfere, you're going to pick, you know, the eight or nine states that are close, um, and and you know so yeah I I would think if if there were a sophisticated you know outside of just the broader disinformation and all that which they obviously do, yeah I think that I think the states that are close uh, 
uh, need to be on a special lookout for interference with with all their election infrastructure mm-hmm. and everything else because that's where you'd go and that that was exactly the point in my first book when the russian oligarch understands gerrymandering he's like oh this is perfect i don't have to go interfere in 400 plus house seats i only have to pick 20 because yeah. it's those 20 and everyone knows who they are that will determine the outcome and in the same way you know uh, the electoral college system cr- has creates you know, eight or ten states in this case that that you know the good thing this year is there are m- many more that we can win, so yeah. that's good. Mm-hmm. So there are more targets, but yeah, it's pretty obvious where you'd go if you want to cause trouble. And the other thing that I think is is more worrisome, you also have, and I think Ohio is better in this regard than other states. You also have different states with different levels of vulnerability based upon their security of their election systems. And, you know, Georgia, I can't speak to the most latest iteration, but they've, they've been notorious for having um, purely electronic voting machines without paper trails. And, again, if you want to go cause trouble, you'd go after those machines before you go after any others. So yeah, yeah. I think it's not only the map but it, it, and who's a swing state. It's also which states have been smarter about really locking down security around their elections versus others, um, which would be easier to take advantage of. What do you think, uh, just as last question here, David, what do you think is the other Russian shoe that's going to drop this particular cycle? Is it going to be voting machines? I, I just, I'm kind of sitting on the edge of my seat waiting, like, because we haven't seen any major hacks. I'm wondering... What's Russia's M.O. this time around? What does the GRU and what does St. Petersburg have in store for us this time? Um, I think I mean, I think the most obvious will continue to be divisive disinformation around everything from these protests and Black Lives Matter to covid. I mean, we're already seeing a lot of that. Um, And and there's clearly the worst thing about, you know, here's the in my first book. The naive part of my, my book is when they discover at the end what happened, Republicans and Democrats come together and say, oh, my gosh, we can't believe that happened. We must solve the problem. I, I actually wrote that because I thought that's what people would do. Yeah. And the worst part about 16 is that we all know what happened and no one's done anything about it. Yep. And so we've invited it again. So I think the most obvious thing that will happen will, is the easiest because Facebook and others have not really done much. This, the continued use of, of you know social media and data to just create so much confusion and disinformation division. Uh, but you know the more worrisome thing, and I, I don't want to pr- predict anything, but the more worrisome thing for me is is you know getting into the election infrastructure of the country. It's clear that they've attempted to do that before. There's a general sense they weren't successful, but I think even that's not completely 100% known. Yeah. And are, are, would they be able to do that in 20? Would they also try and do the kind of things I mentioned? Look, you know, I can't imagine they wouldn't attempt to get into the critical infrastructure of campaigns and parties. I mean, if you were trying to do bad things, that's one of the first places you'd go, which is sort of the point of the book. But my, you know, I, I, of course, the broader disinformation is is going to be happening. But the the shoes that would be that would be truly more damaging would be any success in getting into the infrastructure of elections yeah. or or the heart of campaigns, you know, be it voter file or other things that folks are doing. And, and you know, you can only hope that, that states are prepared for that. But, but I, I will say, we, we have sent a signal to the, to the world, and this is because of our dysfunctional politics. We have sent a signal to the world after 16 that if you hack in and you try and impact the outcome, 
nothing really happens yeah. to you. Mm-hmm. And I, uh, so of course uh, they're going to try again. I mean, there's no doubt about it. And, um, and, um, so uh, yes, it, we yeah. should all be the next 97 days are a huge opportunity, but also really scary. And yeah. we need to all be, I mean, I'll just give an example. I am worried sick as I know our country is about these federal police, quote unquote, police showing yeah. up, not in Portland. They just announced today, Cleveland, Milwaukee, Detroit, the big democratic areas of swing, yeah. of swing states. And and the idea that this close to the election, our cities are becoming the, quote, caravans of 2020 of the election should scare us. And not to sound too paranoid, but my biggest worry, maybe it's a 10 percent chance, is that those, quote, unquote, police ultimately late in the election are awfully close to where we vote. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden we got a whole lot of intimidated voters. I mean that's the kind of thing that a true bad actor would try in the fact that they're moving these people into cities – 98 days to go Yeah. at a time where we know they want to challenge people at polls, which they've announced. All this is really creeping into really, you know, protected space of fair voting. So, no, it really, you know, this all this stuff. I mean, these these police jumping out of cars and take I mean, that's right out of an autocrat's playbook what they're doing. Mm -hmm. And and so, you know, that stuff beyond what Putin's doing, you know, at this point, Bill Barr and Donald Trump seem to be every bit as capable of doing really bad stuff in our elections as any foreign country. Mm-hmm. And this federal police sort of creeping into different cities is we all should be on guard for what ultimately is the plan they have with those people. Do the Ohio Democrats and the DNC have lawyers ready to roll? I have, I have a terrible feeling that Donald Trump is going to use this absentee ballot issue as a way to challenge the results of the election. I mean, are you guys ready to swing into action if that all goes down uh, in and around Election Day? The, so uh, I can't. Yes, the DNC and the and the and the Biden campaign obviously are gearing up. I will say, and this this is special thanks to an old friend of mine, Stacey Abrams, mm. because of support of her and other groups, we have a bigger voter protection and voter observation um, capacity this election than we've ever had. Wonderful. So just as the Republicans planned to literally, and, and this is this has been reported in the Times, but we knew it was coming. Their plan is to literally recruit thousands of operatives to show up at poll locations and challenge voters they deem, quote-unquote, suspicious. It's pure voter intimidation. And what, what are we doing? We're trying to recruit as many people to be poll observers and poll workers to protect those same voters, you yeah. know, one voter at a time. So, yeah, we're recruiting that. We're, we'll go to court if we have to, but we also just need people in the front lines literally protecting the right to vote. But, but I think you're going to see coming – you know, attacks on vote by mail. Uh, you're going to see attempts to quote unquote consolidate polling locations. You know, their dream election is what happened in Georgia: huge lines, long waits, people afraid of getting the pan, the COVID. And so, our push in every way possible is to is to get people to vote by mail early. Every early vote is a vote you can't suppress on election day. And I'll close with this. You know, again, sounding like someone who's written <laughs> the books I have. <laughs> I, I don't believe that Donald Trump is railing against vote by mail because he thinks that Democrats benefit so much more by vote by mail than Republicans. The data is very clear. It's yeah. pretty much a wash. Mm-hmm. I believe that vote by mail means that a whole lot of votes have gotten out of the way before whatever crazy plans they have for Election Day. Yes. And the, the, real, the real threat of vote by mail is that 
you know, the term best laid plans, it interferes with their worst laid plans mm-hmm. of how to make election day chaos. Yeah. And so the more we front load voting, the fewer votes they can throw into turmoil through through um you know, whatever, you know, through having every election, every state look like Georgia's looked in that primary where people waited four and five hours. And that's the, so whenever he reels on vote by mail, I, again, I think it's he does not. It's sort of our safety valve. And he wants to cut off our safety valve. So everyone is stuck voting on, on Election Day in a pandemic. Well, oh, my God, as terrifying as this conversation was, David, I am, am so grateful for your time today. Really, really appreciate it. Again, the, mu- the must-read new book is called The Voter File. It's out now. Huge positive reviews for this book. So you got to check it out. Link in the description at bobseska.com. This is required reading. Thanks so much, David. Uh, good luck to us all. <laughs> Thanks, Bob. Yes, absolutely. We'll see you in 97 days. Yeah, thanks, you bet. Thanks for a great conversation. You got it. Take care, my friend. Okay. Bye-bye. Take care. See ya. Hold it. Don't nobody move. Let's talk about our Amazon link at bobseska.com. Whether you're shopping for yourself or if you're buying music by one of our excellent indie bands or if you're purchasing David Pepper's great new book, Don't forget to use our Amazon link just beneath the logo at bobseska.com. Our special link will take you to the front page of amazon.com where you can go shopping until you're dropping. And by doing so through our link, we receive a teeny tiny commission on some of your purchases. Thank you so much for shopping through our Amazon link. One, two, three, four. Those are numbers. But you already knew that. If you want to know what number you're going to pay each month for your car, use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on AutoTrader. They're really good at numbers. Auto Trader.